but welcome to fatherhood. No, well, wait, hold on. We wait, long past Sue. I, we are we are at the end of our time, not even close. Um, He's been threatening to wring their necks since they were two. <laughs> well, but I used to do it. I used to do it. Now they're fathers and have their own sons or their own children. But they're both doing well. They're both doing well. I mean, there are some serious difficulties. And sh actually, I should have included them in our prayers. So thank you for that. But they're doing well. It's their father that needs some prayer and their mother right now that needs some prayers. Oh, I keep praying for you every Good. Day. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, I, I, and I might say for both of you. Yeah, <laughs> there's times when I'm not sure that we made a mistake when we opened this class. Mary, look at you back there. It's so good to see you. Um, okay, let's start. Um, Horace Kanonicki, we've got the Compline to deal with. Um, I'm not going to summarize the poem, even though there are some newcomers here. You know, we didn't read it last week because um, because of the technical problems, but you know that the Hore Canonicae um, is a poem by Auden structured around the canonical hours, the monastic hours. So it goes through the days. Um, the central image governing everything, I've got to, I've got to do a justice to this, the central image governing the whole poem is the scapegoat. And Auden presents the poem aware that there's a scapegoat mechanism. It, it's, as if, it's as if even before Christ came, there was some sense that something was wrong that could only be answered by a scapegoat, a sacrifice. The ancient world knew it. All the great works imply it, anticipate it. And Christ comes and he makes it real, except what he does that nobody dealing with a scapegoat could do is that he's a god offering himself. So in Auden's line, remember that line? Um, um, in, sorry, I haven't looked at this. Uh, um, that, um, that what was impossible would be done, the impossible would be done, remember, that a God, um, that a God would die. Um, I can't find the line, but, but he has that line um, in which he's describing something impossible, and he doesn't name it. Um, he's, he's so settled, he, he, he never names the, the crucifixion. Um, we know through the poem that what takes place is on Good Friday, and it's only because of that that we can locate everything else. But um, this thing that was not possible happens. A god who is mortal dies. Um, oh, here. It's the beginning of Knowns, the ninth hour at 3 o'clock. This is, this is 3 o'clock. This is when the event happens. What we know to be not possible, though time after time foretold by wild hermits, by shaman and sibyl, gibbering in their trances, or revealed to a child in some chance rhythm, like will and kill, comes to pass before we realize it. We are surprised at the ease and speed of our deed, and uneasy it is barely three, and then they're left to wonder, what shall we do till midnight? So over and over again, he keeps. It's, and it had to be that way at the time. 
you know, who would have known, who would have known, even among his disciples, who would have known that this guy who was being crucified on a cross was God? That an immortal God would take on mortality, that the creature would become a, or the creator would become a creature, the omnipotent, omniscient, um, would become humanly limited. I mean, he, all these paradoxes enter the world with Christ. But here's this one, this this thing that we know not to be possible happens. So, um, the the poem is structured according to the hours. Morning, midday, or mid-morning, afternoon, mid-afternoon, and here we're at Compline. In knowns, in, at three, that's exactly the time that Christ was crucified. So most of the people go on about their life as if nothing's going on. It would have been just like the people in Jerusalem when Christ was killed. Here's this guy on a cross. And all the people in the crowd, who of them knew that was a God? I mean, people are going to go on with their jobs. They're going to do what they do. Except we know, or should know, <laughs> that something more was going on. So the whole poem has this razor-sharp irony that he keeps describing people going about their work as if they just wanted another day, you know, get through the day to manage so they could go along saying, have a good day. But at the center of it is this event, um, I don't know how to put it, that defined the world, really, everything before and everything after. So we went through Vespers and saw those two antitypes, the the one who identified himself with Eden and the one who identifies him with the New Jerusalem, looking back, looking forward. They define all of us. Most of us are either defied, defined in terms of what we already have, the perfections, how capable we are, how knowledgeable we are, or we're dissatisfied and we want more. And we want to bring in this utopian world. They may fuse in some individuals, but he presents them as antitypes. And then he ends that section by saying, um, So the passing glance, we take the other's posture, these two antitypes, the Edenic and the Utopian. Our step proceed, heading incorrigible each towards his kind of meal and evening. Was it as it must look to any god of crossroads? simply a fortuitous intersection of life's paths, loyal to different fibs, or also a rendezvous between accomplices who in spite of themselves cannot resist meeting to remind the other, do both at bottom desire truth, of that half of their secret which he would most like to forget, forcing both of us for a fraction of a second to remember our victim but for him I could forget the blood, that is the Edenic guy could forget the blood except that the New Jerusalem guy reminds him of it because to reach this New Jerusalem requires violence, protest, wars. Um, but for him I could forget the blood, but for me he could forget the innocence. Both of them are in some ways false. One wants New Jerusalem, one wants Eden, one identifies with innocence, one with violence. They both reflect something true, but each of them lacks something in itself. It's the condition that we've been left in from the fall. So he's presented these two poles that help us to see where we are with respect to this um, scapegoat. 
this something that happened at three o'clock. Um, but for him I could forget the blood, but from he could forget the innocence on whose immolation call him Abel, biblical, Remus, Roman, political, worldly, whom you will. It is one sin offering, Arcadia's, Utopia's, our dear old bag of a democracy, all alike founded. As good as our political institutions can be, and they can be good, they can be good and they can be really bad, but all of them are founded on this. All of them. If you know anything about history, you know that there's never been a founding that wasn't violent. Rome, America, I mean, you name it. For without a cement of blood, it must be human, it must be innocent, no secular wall will safely stand. So, you know, one of the themes that we've been dealing with is the city, what he calls the lying city. That the city is man's effort to bring a world into being without God. It's, it's sorry for, but Laney and, and Michael, we, when we started, we started with an image of the city. It was one of our major themes. When um, Cain is cast out, um, he, he is cast out from the existence of God or God's world order. His first son, um, Enoch, is the founder of the first city. So in biblical terms, the city is the, is the order that we try to create to be self-sufficient as if we don't need God. So the city is always paradoxical, as we've seen it in literature. It's, it's, it's an image of everything that's great in man, but it, it's also an image of those things that are hidden, dark things, or turning from God, or you know, all the things we don't look at. It's been one of the major um, themes here. So with that said, if I can, um, the complaint. Okay, I want to. I'm going to read the whole thing and then and try to just limit my comments so we can get on to Lewis. The complaint um, is the end of the day prayers. So it's prayers just before bedtime. Um, it's the completion of the day. We're looking back. Except at this point, at, at I think, 9 in the evening, um, the monks were looking back at 3 o'clock. And in this poem, 3 o'clock was the time Christ was executed. So the evening prayers are now said after the event. And you know that one of the things that distinguishes the poem is that the poet is aware that that people want to go on in their lives as if nothing happened. It's Good Friday. It's commemorating this event. People generally make scapegoats. They're, they're going on doing that without any awareness. But this guy, the poet, um, is aware. He's with the people. He's one among them. But he's also aware that something's wrong, that something happened. And um, he can't get around it. And now it's even more important because the event has taken place. You know, in the morning it hadn't yet. Moving towards the event. Now he's looking back. Okay. Complain. Now as desire in the things desired cease to require attention, as seizing its chance the body escapes, section by section, to join plants in their chaster peace, which is more to its real taste, now a day is its past. Its last deed and feeling in should come the instant of reflection when the whole thing makes sense. It's after the event. It's happened. He should be able to make sense of it. It's there. 
it comes, this recollection, but all I recall are doors banging, two housewives scolding, an old man gobbling, a child's wild look of envy, actions, words that could fit any tale, and I fail to see either plot or meaning. I cannot remember a thing between noon and three. Nothing is with me now but a sound, a heart's rhythm, a sense of stars leisurely walking around, and both talk a language of motion I can measure but not read. Maybe my heart is confessing her part in what happened to us from noon to three. Constellations indeed sing of some hilarity beyond all liking and happening, but knowing I neither know what they know nor what I ought to know, scorning all vain fornications of fancy. Now let me, blessing them both for the sweetness of their cassations, these court actions, accept our separations. Stride from now will take me into dream, leave me without a status among its unwashed tribes of wishes who have no dances and no jokes, but a magic cult to propitiate what happens from noon till three. Odd rites which they hide from me, should I chance, say, on use in an oak wood, insulting a white deer, bribes nor threats will get them to blab, and then pass, untruth is one step to nothing, for the end for me as for the cities is total absence. What comes to be must go back into non-being for the sake of the equity, the rhythm, past measure or comprehending. Things came into being, they have to go out. There's this equity. He ends with the stanza, Can poets, can men in television be saved? It is not easy to believe in noble justice or pray in the name of a love whose name once forgotten. Libera me libera si, dear si, and all poor SOBs who never do anything properly. Spare us in the youngest day when we are all shaken awake. Facts are facts. And I shall know exactly what happened today between noon and three, that we too may come to the picnic with nothing to hide, join the dance as it moves in perichoresis, turns about the abiding tree. I just want to take a few minutes because this is a long poem and we've got some work ahead of us with Lewis, but just just for a minute, what is this, is everybody clear on what they all come to, what the poet comes to? This youngest day when we're all, um, when we all are shaken awake, facts are facts, and I shall know exactly what happened today between noon and three, that we too may come to the picnic with nothing to hide, join the dance as it moves in perichoresis, turns about the abiding tree. You guys have any sense of what that, what that last image of this picnic, the dance, and the perichoresis? And the abiding tree. And the abiding tree? Jeannie, you have any sense? Wait, can't hear you. I think, um, 
I think when he says that we may all know what happened today between noon and three, that everyone will realize that Christ died on the Friday that day. Um, even if they didn't realize it when it was happening, they will eventually realize it. Yeah. And they will all come to the picnic, I think it's talking about uh, coming to the um, to, to eternal life to celebrate uh, our, our um, being redeemed. Um, with nothing to hide, they join the dance as it moves in perichoresis, which I remember. Oh, uh, bless your soul. Bless your soul. It means the relationship between the, uh, the three uh, persons of the Holy Trinity. No, I'm not going to let that go. Flesh, what's this mean, relationship? We all have a relationship. What's the difference? What's the perichoresis? That uh, God the Father loves God the Son, and that love is the Holy Spirit. That's yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's the love is indwelt. They, the the perichoresis is the indwelling of the persons. We remember okay. we went through this with. I just really want to. That's so important because we, in okay. our modern world, I think we think of relationships as don't touch me or you know. The indwelling means they're perfectly one with each other. Okay. So the call for us as Christians is not to just physically be together. It's that somehow we have to risk each other's interior, sometimes whatever pain that brings, to be one with another. And the image of that, the, the ultimate image for us, believing in the Trinity as we do, is the, is the perichoresis, the indwelling. Mm -hmm. So he's imagining this moment when, as you, I mean, you've described it perfectly, Jeannie, it's everybody's redeemed, they, they're, they're no longer isolated individuals, they're at this picnic. <laughs> it's interesting that he's taken all these earthly things that you know people get preoccupied with. So it's so it's colloquial, but it's an image of the banquet. You know, in the church we'll use the word banquet. Who would what priest would talk about a picnic we're going to have in you know in heaven? Um, but we're all there at this picnic. Um, it's this taking all these earthly desires we had and where they will all be fulfilled, that we will all be together in this dance around the tree in perichoresis, perfectly indwelling. You know, the, um, Lainey, um, Michael, you guys weren't here, but when we, did the, when we did Dante's Divine Comedy, when we got to the end, there, you, you couldn't read a scene without seeing Beatrice and Dante indwelling. She had a thought, she, she knew Dante's thought two seconds before he spoke it. You know, it's just, there's no way for that not to happen if you're all one with God, you are a distinct individual, but you're also one with another. And the whole call in marriage in our church is to be one, um, not just legally or, you know. So the perichoresis is a really important term. And we, in our modern age, because we're so individualistic, we don't make a place for it at all, sadly. Anyway, the, the, I think the beauty of the Compline is that the event took place. It's happened. He looks back, um, should come the instant of recollection when the whole thing makes sense. It comes, but all I recall are doors banging, two housewives scolding, man gobbling, 
um, that could fit any tale, and I fail to see either plot or meaning. I cannot remember a thing between noon and three. It's the way we go to rest at night with an exhausting day. You know, it's overwhelmed, the chaos, the noise, and we want rest. And then he describes this, you know, that, that um, to join plants in their chaster peace, because plants are just going to, you know, return. They, they don't carry consciousness, but so the body, the heart pounds, nothing is with me now but a sound, a heart's rhythm, a sense of stars leisurely walking. The constellations go on, his body go on, but even though he doesn't want to acknowledge it, he carries something in him. He can't, he can't make a place for it. When he goes to sleep among its unwashed tribes of wishes, the whole unconscious, the awful stuff that, that's a part of our unconscious is described, among its unwashed tribes of wishes who have no dances and no jokes, but a magic cult to propitiate what happened from noon till three. It's as if the underworld of our unconscious is a parody. It, we can't escape the crucifixion. So even if we make up shadowed images in our unconscious, a magic cult to propitiate what happened, it's a parody. It's twisted. Kids who did something with a white deer, something sacred. They kept their honor with each other. That's what kids do. So the world goes on with what it does, keeping honor. You know, it's a good thing to do. But people are missing the starkness of the incarnation, the crucifixion, that a God, that a God, that a God died. So... And then past untruth is one step to nothing, is total absent um, for the end, for me, as for the cities, for all of us. Um, there's this one thing that we can't forget, or, or I don't quite know how to put this. It's, um, he's, he's aware of it, but he, he will, he, nothing he does can make a place for it. It's almost it's like it's too stark to face. And then it leaves you with this question, can poets, you know, men in television, can they be saved? Spare us in the youngest day, that day when our youth, our agelessness will be returned to us. When all are shaken awake, facts are facts. There will be no escaping. That's the condition. And I, have, I remember one of the, um, Debbie's not online tonight, but I remember a year ago, so I don't remember what work we were talking about, She, but she was, I, we had to be in Dante. She was talking about how embarrassing it would be for all of us to have our sins exposed to each other. Because in purgatory, you know, we're all, I mean, Dante's image of purgatory. And we were laughing because I think I was saying, you know, all of us are ashamed. I mean, somehow in purgatory, we will be there with each other unashamed. I mean, it's, so there's this beauty of the truth, you know, embarrassing things, shameful things. On the youngest day when all are shaken awake, facts are facts, and I shall know exactly what happened. God, that's beautiful. So all day long, he's, you know, he can't account for this, what happened. It's the crucifixion. Busy, noisy, troubling, chaotic. You go to bed at night and you're carrying all these things. And underneath them was this God dying. And I shall know exactly what happened today between noon and three that we too may come to the picnic with nothing to hide, join the dance as it moves in perichoresis 
turns about the abiding place. So next week we will finish the <laughs> the Jorge. And if you've looked ahead, if you've read it, you know the, the lauds is really short. And Suzanne and I were talking about it, and she was just shaking her head and said, I, um, I can't make any sense of it. It's very short. Next week we have got to make sense of the ending of this poem. This is the ending of a, you know it's a, it's a razor-like irony. It, the ironies that run through it are sharp to sharp. So this is lauds. Um, just hold that in your mind. Every one of the sections, every one of the hours has dealt with something hidden, buried, that was overwhelming. In the morning, you know, the lodge at the beginning of the day, it's a time of giving praise. So, I want to look closely at that. What, what is he doing at the end of this poem in lodge to give praise? And what does he mean in solitude for company? In solitude for company. Um, Lainey, sorry, Michael, all this stuff is online. You have to go to um, the website and there will be a, a folder with the poetry and you can get all the poems we've done. This would be one of them and print them off. So it's a long poem. It's a, it's a razor edge. It, I, I think one of the great themes about it is irony, that there's nothing that goes on in this world that isn't ironic. And, but his, in his poem, because he's dealing with Good Friday and the crucifixion, it is razor sharp. It is a, it's a tough poem to look at. Um, but it ends with lots, okay? So next week when we finish, um, we have to see how he brings this all to a close, okay? Any comments or questions before we, we take up uh, um, Abolition and Boethius? That should be a class in itself, I think, what we just did. <laughs> God... Oh God! Any questions or comments on the Compline? Stephen, you're a newcomer. Any? What's your response? I'm just or curious. Michael. Or Michael? Sorry, Michael. Sorry, Michael. What's your response? Any? Laney, are you just turn your audio on? Are you guys? Okay, go. I'm. Uh, I, I have no response. <laughs> <laughs> no, we are feeling very unprepared, but yes. we're going to make up for it. No, don't. I actually, I, I thought as soon as I said that I shouldn't have because it. No, was, no, it's fine. It was putting you on the spot unfairly. It's just I'm. I'm glad you're here, and I. I know it's got to be overwhelming. Um, to it come in in the middle of overwhelming, but I like how you're dissecting it to break it down in little snippets so that we can really catch what's going on there. Because otherwise, we wouldn't have been able to. Yeah, so. yeah, correct. Yeah, just know that I'm there all the time. That poem. That poem. <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. That poem is a really hard poem. Mm -hmm. Really hard poem, and it's even longer because it's long. Mm -hmm. It's a lot to. Hmm? Ask Fred and Francis what they think. Fred, Francis, Suzanne wants to know what you guys think about it. Francis, no, don't, don't point to it. Francis, no, you, come back here. <laughs> Do you guys have any thoughts? Just waiting for the grand finale. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it's going to be grand, but it's, it's, it's going to be interesting because it, 
you know, I think this poem is razor sharp, but he's ending on a laud, so it's a. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what we do with that. Okay, let's let's go to uh, abolition. Okay, abolition of man. Um, you know that in the first book, Lewis was um, raising a question about education. By the way, Laney and Michael, you have to get a copy of. Uh, C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man. Um, and I mentioned last week, I, um, I'm sorry Mark's not here, but this book called The Summa of the Summa, um, Mark had a question, and I know Don's got um, questions about St. Thomas's proofs for the existence of God. It's a very short book. It's a summary of the Summa. It's just a, a little short thing. Um, but I think the first four or five questions that Thomas asks deal with the science science of theology. Now moderns would make no place for that because they think theology has only to do with faith and it can't be reduced to a science. I don't want to go into that because it's just too deep, but it but it it, it at least it provides a way of talking about the rational proofs that man can make for the existence of God and whether whether or not they're scientific. I, I don't want to take that up right now. Mark raised the question last week, but I think for anybody who really troubles over these, who wants to know more, I, I can't recommend another work strongly enough. The first five questions, um, Thomas is dealing with those questions, the, the science of theology and its ground as a science. So I would encourage anybody who is interested just to buy that book. It's, it's, it's relatively inexpensive. We began last week, remember, um, looking at, well, the week before at, at C.S. Lewis' first chapter, and it's in that chapter, that he was reading this book by these educationalist teachers <coughs> who made um, this kind of statement that all, all statements about something outside of us are really nothing more than projections of our own feelings. And they use the example from Coleridge when Coleridge described the two people of the waterfall, you remember. One of them said the waterfall was pretty, and one of them said it was um, sublime. sublime. And the two, edu the two educators were saying that as a matter of fact, what was going on was not what Coleridge described, what they were doing is describing their own feelings, so that one of the guys was actually saying, I have sublime feelings about that waterfall. Lewis made the point that that's not true, that, um, that if, if you were in the presence of a waterfall that was sublime, your feelings would be humility, dread, gratitude, awe. So, if, for example, if we were in the presence of God, let's just say, I'm assuming all of you would know we would feel dread, awe, a tearful gratitude, overwhelming gratitude. Um, so he was acknowledging that there's a correlation between our feelings and the outside world, but we can't make the outside world just a projection of our feelings. If we do that, we lose contact with the outside world, then we're in trouble. That's basically his argument. His argument is that the subjectivist theory of reality will end up destroying us. That's the beginning of the second chapter. That's where we left off. Because if there is no reality and all that's real is our own feelings, 
we have no way of, of relating to the world or each other. We make our feelings everything and we end up actually isolating because everybody's going to feel differently. In the ancient world, he made the, and he went back to Plato. You all know this from the work we've done. The, the great, because Plato was facing the same problem in the Republic, but some people were making the exact same argument as Gaius and Titus, the, the two educators, that um, justice is um, whatever those who are in power determine it to be. And Plato say, no, that's not what justice is. It's not those who in power can make justice. Justice is a reality outside of us. And we, we've talked about this. I, I don't want to spend too much time here, but Tracy, been waiting for you. There you are. Um, justice isn't just what's on our law books. Justice is an order of the universe. It, so in the Old Testament, God created things in a certain order. He made man a certain way, things a certain way. Justice, in that sense, is being in attuned with things. To be just is to be one with God's way. That's Old Testament. Plato made the same argument as a pagan. Plato was saying is, justice means we have to learn to order our souls according to the nature of our souls in order to be just with others. So it isn't until we order our own souls that we can give another his due. So the whole so Plato, the pagans in the Old Testament, are really... Um, compatible with each other in that respect. And even when Christ comes, I mean, he says, love as I do, he's saying, conform yourself to me. Um, so the whole modern tendency is subjective, even in the, particularly the Protestant world. My faith, my, I, the world will be as I see it. Our, Lewis is arguing that, that that attitude, the subjectivist attitude that that the will determines what's going to be is absolutely at odds with reality. That the ancient problem was learn, learning what our nature was, ordering it so we could be just to another. Christ took that a step farther, and, and I, we stress this, I just can't stress it enough. Christ did nothing to undermine his dad, his father. He, he, he said, I came to fulfill the law. He did nothing to overturn the law. He fulfilled it. What he's saying is, along Old Testament lines, be just, but now bring a divine love to your efforts to be just. So he's saying, conform your will to me. Be a just person and bring a love to whatever acts of justice you do. The two are not supposed to cancel them out. So the argument that Lewis is making is that this the tendency to to see the world in subjectivist terms is actually destructive. That the whole struggle we face is learning to order ourselves and um, become one with the world outside. That was the basic argument that we began with. Um, remember he, on page 28 he used the, the uh, image from Shelley the poet of a harp. The, the harp had to be attuned you know, to produce its music. <clears throat> so it's like an image of the soul we have to learn to tune the strings so that we can produce a harmony. If that's true, you're going to laugh at me at this, if that's true, it means poetry is helping us in that direction. Because, and you know, you know my feelings about it, because there's an awful lot of bad poetry. 
But the best poetry is an expression of some harmony, some beauty, some music that's one with the world. I can't imagine there being anything in heaven that isn't poetic. The dance around the dance around the, the perichoresis around the abiding tree. It will be beauty and harmony and music. Um, sorry? You said one with the world? Sorry. And one with God. One with God. So, um, in book two, let me just read the line so we can get there. Book two begins, remember, with the image, the um, epigram, or epigraph, sorry. The chapter two begins, it is upon the trunk that a gentleman works. And that's taken from Confucius, and we talked about the trunk. The trunk is a metaphor for reality. Confucius was saying that a gentleman works with what is. He learns to work with what's there, to make himself gentle. If you reject that, you're going to become violent and um, ungentle, not a gentleman. So Lewis is using that image as, because it's going to be an important image in the middle of the chapter, because when people um, act on the assumption that they can create a new reality, that they're not bound to a nature, that they're not bound to God, they very often do things that lead to violence because they're against nature. They're against the trunk. It's like the branches rebelling. That's his own image, the branches rebelling against the trunk. So he says at the opening of, ch of chapter 2, the practical result of education in the spirit of the Green Book must be the destruction of the society which accepts it. Okay. Now, um, he's he's aware that Gaius and Titus, the two educators whose book he was critiquing, um, see themselves as not bound to reality, God or the the Tao. Lewis, Lewis is doing everything he can not to make this Christian. He talks about the Tao, the way, this the the, the order, the way. The, um, <clears throat> And he says, if you ask them to give an account, a basis for their thinking, they couldn't do it because they've rejected the Tao. They will say, what you do, you do on instinct, the basis of instinct. And he argues that through. And he says, you can, you can, they can do it on the basis of scientific facts. But scientific facts and instinct, instincts will not get us to an ought. You ought to do this. You ought to obey your dad or your mom, or you ought to take care of your grandparents, you know, or your grandchildren. Or, and I love that, you know, we stopped in that, that passage where, he said, where he's really talking about a syllogism. Um, sorry, let me get it. Um, if anybody can help me, if you know where the page is. Um, Oops. Um, I'm coming to it. Um, it was a sort of a mate here on page 43. 43. Neither choice is rational or irrational if you're basing your 
um, your judgment on emotions, because an emotion can't be, it, the, the question is whether your emotions come into conformity with reason. Neither choice is rational or irrational at all. From propositions about fact alone, no practical conclusion can ever be drawn. This will preserve society, cannot lead to do this, except by the mediation of society ought to be preserved. This will cost your life, cannot lead directly to do not do this. It can lead to it only through a felt desire or an acknowledged duty of self-preservation. The innovator is trying to get a conclusion in the imperative, do this, you ought to do this, out of premises in the indicative mood. And though he continues trying for all eternity, he cannot succeed for the things impossible. I, I remember going back to this because I, I know everybody was stumped on it, but it's it's one of those basic things that you'd, you know, you know, all of us would get in high school. I never did. And I, when I read this the first time, I'd, I, I was just amazed at the, the beauty of his thought, the, the, profound, the profundity of it. If you take a syllogism, all men are mortal, Socrates is immortal, or no, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore he's mortal. Right? If all men are mortal, you paint this big, or draw this picture, say Socrates is a man, he belongs in it, I mean he has the qualities of that generality, he himself is mortal. If you start a premise in the indicative, all men are mortal, you cannot get in the conclusion. You, it'll never happen. You cannot get in the conclusion in imperative, and not. You can only do it in a premise that has an imperative in it. What he's saying is um, that all of these practical, I don't call them moral, truths, pieces of wisdom, are self-evidently true. If you try to find a ground behind them, you won't get to them. It's impossible. What he's saying is that the ground of our, um, of our being has to begin with something self-evidently true. And I, I tried to give the, I mean, I gave the um, suggestions to you because I don't think moderns think that way at all. Remember, we're in our heads, we're not in reality. Aristotle, I mean, T Lewis, going back to um, St. Thomas and Aristotle and realist, would say, in fact, he s says it here, you have to start with something self-evidently true or you can't have an argument. Um, if you don't start with something self-evident, you can't begin to talk. Let me, let me, let me leave it. So let's say I'm, I'm here. There's not a question in my mind. Suzanne's here in this chair. Her eyes are closed right now. She's in this chair. That's a self Nobody's going to convince me otherwise. Now, I can draw conclusions from that. I can say, I can go offer some wine. I can get up. You know, I mean, we can say things. But all of us have to begin with something self-evident, or we can't begin to think. And I, and I said, I suggested to everybody that the, that the first principle of thought the principle that you cannot question. Beyond that, you can't go. The first principle of thought is the rule of non-contradiction. Either Suzanne's in that chair or she's not. If she's here, I cannot say she's here and not here. She's here. If, if I were to say she's not here, I'd be contradicting myself. It's only on the basis of that that something is self-evidently true that you can go on to make an argument.
the first principle of moral action, the basis, the self-evident truth, you can't find anything beneath it. That's the rock. The first principle of moral action is do good and avoid evil. It's on the basis of all that, all the other maxims come. And I, I suggested all of you look at the end. I, I went through it today. Look at the end because he has all these examples from Babylon, Egypt, Jerusalem, all over the world of these moral axioms that express the moral thinking of a people across the centuries. Um, your father's an image of the Lord of creation, your mother's an image of the earth, because the mother can bring forth out of herself. For him who fails to honor them, every work of piety is in vain. This is the first duty. That's from the Hindu, Jeanette, one nine. It's, it's Hindu. I mean, he, he takes these things from all over the place. The point he's making is that um, there is a reality to all of us Every one of us is a human. We have a nature. The modern believes we don't have a nature. Somebody can change sex. They can do whatever they want. We can create our own world. Lewis is saying um, we have a nature. There's a law to it. And it's important for us to work with it. The modern mind has a notion that um, we have a freedom, a power to do anything we want. Um, as if there were no nature there. So, two things before I break to Boethius. One is, um, implicitly what he's saying, even though he's not used these words, he, he's doing nothing Christian. The beauty about this work is that Lewis is showing us, I, I can't say this strongly enough, Lewis is showing us the resources of rationality at the heart of Christianity, at the heart of our faith. He's making these arguments on the basis of reason alone. He's making no appeal to faith anywhere, anywhere. He's trying to reach a modern rationalist audience. I can't say that strongly enough. He, he's, he's not appealing. He's not proselytizing. He's trying to show that there is something to reason that can help us as human beings become better. So implicitly, he doesn't say this, I'm saying it. He did, implicitly he's saying, there is a law written in our hearts. That's Paul. Every one of us created in the image of God as a law, a nature. God made us each. You know, I hope, I mean, my, pray, my prayer for us, our kids, my prayer for you guys, is that um, every one of us will become who it was God gave us to be. You know, Lane and Michael, Fred, Tracy, he gave each one of us, it's like Dante in that, you know, each one of us is an individual. Can we get beyond the sins that we all struggle with, become that person? So implicitly, he's, he's one with Paul here that there is a law written in our hearts and um, it's important to work with it, to acknowledge it. The modern world and its subjectivist tendency doesn't start there. So it, it, um, it goes against it in lots of ways. And Lewis is making the argument that ironically, every time they make an appeal to something, they're actually appealing to this, the trunk, the Tao, the way. It's just that they keep taking parts of it and ignore the whole at, at their own cost. The second thing is this. 
that um, that we have a nature and it's important to work with it to know who we are to become that person the second is this and this was a fundamental truth of St. Thomas and it was a fundamental truth of the Christian Middle Ages truth is the conformity of the mind with things I'll say that again truth is the conformity of the mind with things and let me elaborate on this again for God it's the opposite for God, things were conformed to his mind because he made them, right? He made these things, they're ordered to him. That's Boethius' argument, by the way. Truth conformed to his, or things conformed to him, he made them. He's the source of all things. For us, the question is learning to conform our mind to things, to see what's there. So truth is when we actually can make clear that nature to a thing. You know, truth is this or the modern world reverses that the modern world says truth is what I will make it that it's relative to me the truth is relative it can be one thing for you it can be another for me it's one of the dangers of our modern world so Lewis is tackling this serious serious problem with modernity head-on with his book so that's that's where we were when I when I <laughs> <laughs> when I took us back to Boethius because I wanted to go back to a realist. Lewis is talking about the subjectivist theory. Here, Doc, you want this? Here. Um, and the dangers of it. I just, I wanted, in case anybody had confusions about it, I wanted to go back to Boethius to a realist who believes that there's an objectivity that we've got to pay attention to. That was the basis of this whole argument. So let me stop there before we turn to um, Boethius and, and do this quick review. Any, any questions about Lewis up to this point, the middle of chapter 2? I can't say it starkly enough. I mean, his opening sentences, anybody who's following this, this way, I mean, that's just, it's a pretty stark opening to the second chapter. Um... The Practical Result of Education in the Spirit of the Green Book, the, the one written by Gaius and Tidius, the people who he won't name. The practical result must be the destruction of the society which accepts it. They're absolutely out of tune with reality, and everything they do in the interest of progress is actually going to undercut themselves. That would be the argument of Book 3. That's where we're going. That they will actually... Um, undermine themselves in so much of what they're doing because they're not connected to reality. Let me stop. Any any questions about Lewis's argument up to this point? Well, I have a question, Kathy. Hi. Hi, go ahead, Kathy. Come, come. Um, am I understanding what you're saying is that truth truth isn't uh, isn't relative. It isn't what we think it is. There is an absolute to truth. Yes. And that, okay. Yes. Um, I know Pope John Paul, he made a statement one time, he says the truth is unfolding. But it still always was and always will. It's an absolute. Is that what you're saying? I mean, it'd be really careful here, Kathy. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah. We're, you know. Yeah. Experience it maybe uh, deeper. Yeah. Still. Thomas would agree. Um, Pope John Paul wouldn't have any questions with Thomas. Thomas would say that the ultimate truth is absolute. Okay. The, the truth is a person. I'm okay. the truth the way that he is the truth. Right. But certain things happen on earth that bring in a relative element. So, you know, the, so this could be more true than this, relatively speaking. I think it's what allowed, I'm not, I don't know the passage, but, I, but I'm trusting it was something like this, the truth is unfolding it. So in the Catholic Church, for example, um, nobody knew about the doctrine of transubstantiation, you know, 500 years ago, or the or um, uh, Mary's Anne's the Immaculate Conception, you know, that um, John Henry Newman's great book called, I think, The Development of Christian Doctrine was an effort to answer the Protestants um, and show that um, the, the church wasn't violating its principal truths. It was actually conforming to it, but it was developing internally in a way that was consistent. So some things become clear in time. Um, but remember Lewis's argument when he, when he takes up exactly that question, he says, so lots of moderns are going to say, well, does that make no place for progress? Because if there's this trunk and you can't change it, does that mean you're stuck? And he said, no, no. Um, Progress is possible, always, but from within the Tao. You know, so truths emerge in time. We see things more clearly now than we did, say, 200 years ago or 400 years ago. But he would argue that, that the clarity that we reach in any of those stages um, gets richer because it's in tune with, it carries with it, the great truths of the past. A, a truth, another truth, I mean, his words is it's like the branches rebelling against the trunk. They're actually destroying it. They're working against it. Because some people will push things as if they're true when they're not. You know, one of the arguments of the what he's really taking up is ideologues. Ideologues believe we can bring in this social utopia. We don't need God. We can create a utopia on earth. Lewis would say, I would say, in agreeing with him, that's destructive that efforts in that direct direction are going to be violent. They're going to be self-defeating. That if we don't create a polity that's in tune with our nature, or as God gave it, then we're in trouble. So truths emerge, they clarify. The argument he's making is that um, progress is possible, development is possible, but from within the trunk, the Tao, the, our nature, whatever it is God's given us. When we're outside of that, um, then we're dangerous to ourselves. We all know that. We all know that. We all believe, I think most of us believe, communism is a threat. Plato would make this argument, even though some people see him as the father of communism. I think that's a bad reading of the Republic. Plato would say any political... So one of the, one of the purposes of Plato's Republic was to show in the face of the people who said justice is whatever the strong make it? He said, no, that's not true. Justice is learning to see the order of the soul, the nature of the soul, and creating a political regime that's in tune with it. When you create a political regime that's out of tune with the soul, you're going to create violence. How can it not be? 
So development is possible. Truth unfolds. Um, so there is an absolute truth for sure. I mean that's our, you know, but okay. but we see things relatively often in the world because we're dealing with a world in change and flux, and we have to put things next to each other and weigh and make decisions and. Thank you. One of the most important things I want to stress here is remember Lewis is saying, and I hope everybody's clear in this, you cannot argue if you don't begin with something self-evident. Plato, Aristotle would say, um, every, everything has an unchanging substratum. Hold on to that for a second. Every single thing has an unchanging substratum. You have to be Kathy, fixed, for you to grow, you know, to change, to become more and more. But if we got offline and suddenly you turned into a tree, you know, I mean, so growth, all growth depends on something fixed, unchanging. You're Kathy. You will never, if you ever, if you ever cease to be Kathy, whatever changes take place in you will be sad. I mean, a, a sorrow to see. We, we want to become who we are so we can change, develop, but what's developing is what, what was given for us to be. That's true of a tree, of a rose, you know, a person. So there's always something there. There's something self-evident. We, we have to learn to see. I mean, you know that one of the aims of, of our work together in this class in literature is to see what's there. When we've read the Iliad, what's my, my you know, the word, we've, it's interesting to me that um, Auden used it tonight. He looked back over the day and he could not tell the story. He could not grasp the whole. What happened between noon and three, he could not get it. And yet the fact that he said that meant he had some sense that it was there, or he would never have said that. Remember, the plot is the outward incidents, but the action is that whole, what that whole is. Every one of us has been given, I don't know what to call it, personhood. And all the changes we make will either violate that, harm it in our sins, or help it to grow. Our church is here to help every one of us to become who we were given to be. That's the trunk. Well, sorry, sorry. Go ahead, Kathy. When you were talking about, I, you know, I'm Kathy. I will always be Kathy. I will not be a tree. Does that go to the um, uh, natural law? Yep. Okay. Yep. Exactly there. Exactly there. Any other, any other questions or? Thank you. Observations or arguments or whatever you guys have. I'm so aware, Lainey, you and Michael are still around. I just, every minute of year, I just think, <laughs> there's got to be powers of endurance there because <laughs> we're in the middle of some heavy stuff. Okay, just when you thought it's going to get heavy, so let's go to Boethius, okay? I want to go to Boethius just for a review, I mean, quick review. We went back to this last time, and I think everybody was tripping on by the way, this is a digression. I'm, I'm going back to Boethius because I want to I see if we can get an example of realist thinking, the, the, the belief that there's something objectively there. Okay? 
You remember when Boethius, the constellation opens, Boethius is in jail. He's been accused of a crime he didn't commit. He's going to be executed. He's in jail. He's a great philosopher. He's, he, he's one of the... I, the consolation, I think, is the greatest work between St. Augustine and St. Thomas. And Boethius did this great treatise on the Trinity. He produced one of the greatest works on the Trinity that's ever been produced. Truly. He's just an extraordinary man. He's going to be executed. If any man had a right to whine or be angry, that man did. He was gifted. He had... A, um, he had stature in the Senate. Um, he loved philosophy. He, he spent his life trying to educate his sons. They were all well-respected men. He gets accused of a crime he didn't commit, and he's in jail. And you know when the story begins, he's crying and whining, and Lady Philosophy comes. This is a woman, Lady Philosophy, wisdom. She comes to him and says, stop crying. <laughs> stop your whining. The trouble with you is that you've been, <laughs> you've been reading t too much poetry, too much literature. And so the beginning is factually based. This man is unhappy. He believes in, in purely experiential terms that it's more in our nature to be happy. We want happiness. Why would he be miserable unless happiness were taken away from him? So it's not like Boethius is jumping into his head. He's starting with an actual fact. If somebody were to kill a, ch a child we loved or a person we loved, we would be upset. If we saw our child grow up to, be, to do something well, I think we'd probably be overwhelmed, probably brought to tears in joy, to thank, thanks God. Our end, the, all the ancient pagans, our end was happiness, the natural end of man. They couldn't deal with sin, they didn't know about it until Christ comes into the world, but they say our natural end. Boethius is starting there. Um, um, Boethius is, miser is in misery, and Lady Philosophy, stop your, stop your crying. The problems, and you know that she goes on and said, the problems with you. She said, you've lost your way, that you're suffering from amnesia, loss of memory. And she introduces this notion, we've talked about it with Dante, of anamnesis, anamnesis, the loss of recollection. That she said, you once knew who you were, and you, you couldn't have known who you were unless you knew your beginnings or ends. So what are your beginnings or ends? If you knew that, you wouldn't. You would not be doing what you. You would not be crying or as angry as you are. Um, and it's at that point that she begins to, this dialect, this dialogue between Boethius and Lady Philosophy begins. And you know, she asks, okay, what is it that make men happy? And you remember that um, that the that the things that most men pursue are wealth. Thinking, if the more money we have, the happier we'll be. Then why are so many wealthy people on drugs? Somebody please answer that question for me. Wealth, popular claim, be a Hollywood star and everybody will love you. Political power, um, be Hillary Clinton. No, please don't. Please don't. God. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. Political power, fame, bodily pleasure, true nobility. And you know that she takes on each one of those things and shows none of them can give man true happiness. Why? Can we just stop for a second? Why? Tracy. Why?
because they're of this world. They're fleeting and passing, and they're all about you. Yep, yep. And she also went on to say that, you know, very often when you acquire those things, because you don't want to lose them, there's a possessive love that they mean so much to you, that you become fearful of losing them, anxious, that as a matter of fact, you become more worried about them so that you lose your peace of mind. Um, so she went through all the earthly things that, that men pursue in the hope of being happy and, and, and makes clear that final happiness cannot rest on any of them because none of them is self-sufficient. None of them is, is um, complete in itself that there's only one thing that can satisfy man's infinite longings, and that's an infinite God that's good, whose goodness is in itself. I, I'm trusting everybody's okay. I'm, I remember when we got to this point, um, Mark, I'm sorry, Mark's not here tonight, um, but I think I'd made the point that um, we can prove every one of those things. You know, by experience, most most of us have gotten wealthy, and most we've got a new car. We think we're going to be happy, and there's a scratch on it two weeks later. <laughs> how many how many of us are going to be happy with that scratch? Um, or you know, or or once the currency gets deflated or something, you know. I mean, I don't. You guys, we all know this. So, she she makes clear that we know from experience. This is not theory. We know from actual concrete experiences the truth of what she says. She turns to God and says, only God can do that. And Mark raised the question last week, how do we know there's a God? We know there's misery. We know there's wealth. We know there's political fame. We know that we can be successful in business. But how do we know there's a God? I don't want to go there tonight, if you'll pardon. I sent you all these materials that I, I think are, are amazing you know, demonstrations of God's existence. Um, we don't know what God is. We can make probable arguments about what he is. But we can know his existence. Thomas makes those proofs. There are other proofs. I've sent you things. You know, go, on, go to the natural, um, natural, natural law tradition in our folder and you can look. They're, some, they're short. Um, they're really good. But she goes on to say that there's only one thing, it's God, and God is complete in himself. He doesn't owe his existence to anything else. He's self-sufficient in himself. Now, we got to the, in our review, that point where Boethius said, if God is all goodness, evil has to be nothing, a privation. And she went on to make the arguments that, that, People who commit, because remember the central question of, of the consolation is, why does God allow evil to good men and, um, or sorry, why does God allow evil men to prosper? And why does she allow, or why does God allow good men to suffer? It's the Job question. Why do good men, why are, why do good men seem to be punished? Why are they, why do they suffer? And why do evil men prosper? She goes on to show that um, all evil men actually end up suffering more than they want to admit because they can't do what they naturally were inclined to do, which is to be good. They don't have the will. So almost everything they do will undo them, will undermine them. And good men, on the, in contrast, are better because 
they set out to do good and and can actually accomplish the good they go to. Even if they suffer, that goodness cannot be taken away. She goes on to say that God allows evil um, to happen to good men and good to happen to bad men for a couple of reasons. She said, all men can be improved by hardships because then their goodness is tested. That's exactly what's going on in the Job story. Satan comes to God and says, Job's not as good as you think think he is. And and he tests him, and he is. Um, God allows evil for us to test our goodness. And he also allows it because very often when evil people accomplish the good they're after, wealth, popularity, they end up wanting that stuff so bad that they want to be good, to hold on to it. They won't trust it to evil men because they know they can lose it. So actually some of that stuff works to the advantage of evil people because it helps them to get better. The people have conversions. We all know this. It happens to everywhere. Suzanne and I have been watching um, Tolkien's The Fellowship of the Ring. It's, it's amazing to watch evil at work in this story, if you've all watched The Return of the King, to watch evil destroy itself. And over and over and over and over again, just when evil seems ready to be victorious, something happens. Always. It's Boethius' principle. Goodness is diffusive. God made nothing bad. Goodness is diffusive. It's always at work. So we reached that point before when she, that stage of the conclusion, you know, bringing her arguments to a conclusion, she said, if we see this all well, we reach a point where we realize there is no bad fortune. That God is, all, this, if God is a good God, even if evil's at work at the world, he's doing everything he can to bring some good out of it. That's our good God. Uh, this is the question that we left, that I we stopped with, I think, last time, and I want to go back to it because I think people, I think m- more Catholics are Manichaean than they realize. You all know what Manichaeism is? Manichaeism is that ancient... F- Tracy, go ahead. Oh, um, Manichaeism is a belief in a dualism, that, that good and evil are co-eternal, that good is associated with spirit, Evil is associated with the body. Calvinist, <laughs> Calvinist hated the body. He thought the body was really bad. There's a Manichaean element to Calvinism. Um, the, the foolishness of that philosophy is if, if, if good and evil are co-eternal, there's no reason not to choose evil. So here was my question, because it, I, I think people were tripping over it. And it's just to me, it's too basic, and I don't want to go past it. If God is all good, where is evil? Um, I mean, just for a moment, posit, assume, evil's outside of God. What's the problem with that? I think more Catholics are Manichaean than they realize, but let's see here. If God is all good, where did evil... Those of you who've read Dante should know the Catholic Church's answer on this, because Dante nailed it in the middle of the purgatorio. If God is good, what is evil and where is it? Boethius says evil's got to be nothing. Well, I really looked and looked and thought about this a lot this week. Good for you. 
<laughs> well, it came up before, and and I just you know kind of put it aside as too complicated. But I, this I came across, and I and it made sense to me. Nothing evil exists in itself, but only as an evil aspect of some actual entity. Evil nothingness is dependent upon good existence, but good does not depend upon evil. There can be no evil without good, whereas there can be no good, uh, or there can Can be be no good. good without evil. No, there can be good without evil. Yeah, there the right to the now, put, now. There can be no evil without good, good because good needs an embodiment. But there can be good without evil. There can be good without evil. Yeah. Now put that book away and tell me again what you said in your own words. Wait, or whatever. Put it away. Yes, good can exist. I mean, evil oh, has to have good. Uh, to it be in body, because if it doesn't have a, a place, it actually needs good to exist. Yep. So yep. that's my own words. <laughs> let me let me see if I can go back and put a couple of simple simple things out here before we, because everybody or many of you look a little bit perplexed on this. So I want to know where the, what the source is. What's that she was reading from? I don't know. Um, just for a second, if we can conceptually go at it this way, what's the problem with saying that evil exists outside of God? I mean, actually, Kathy's already answered, but let me put it that way. What's the problem with saying, Jeannie, I think you hit it. I think you nailed it last week, too. What's the problem with saying that evil exists outside of God? Go ahead. <laughs> no, no. Go, go ahead, Jeannie. If God is omnip- he's omnipotent and he's, he's God is everything. He's everything that is good and he is complete in himself. If there is anything that exists outside of God, then God is no longer really all-powerful and complete. Good. And Good. Almighty, because there's something outside of him. Good for you. So, evil cannot exist outside of God, but if God is all good, God can't be evil, so evil must be the absence of God. Good. Okay, if you can't, yeah, absolutely right. Could, I mean, logically, you're flawless. Locate evil. If you could take what Kathy was saying, where now what do you do with evil, Jeannie? Evil exists where where good has is missing for some reason. <laughs> I don't know. I don't yeah. know how to say it. Let me let me put it this way. So I hope everybody's enjoying this. I don't know if I'm I'm beating a. I hope I'm not beating. Um, when we read Dante, or let me put it differently in Kathy's terms. Um, how to put this, could any of the creatures in hell take human beings, because human beings were, I mean, they made up the bulk of hell. Remember in the lower hell, the demons were the guardians. They were the ones watching over. They were in hell. 
So the fallen angels, can somebody do evil if he does not exist? Can somebody perform an evil act if he doesn't have existence by which to commit that? I mean, it goes to Kathy's point a second ago. No. You can't. So every one of those souls in hell has been, was created good. God made nothing evil. That's our belief. God made, and this is, and by the way, Boethius is not taking a Christian line. He's like Lewis. He's using reason. Um, God made nothing evil. He made everything good. The, the ones who do evil were created beings so they could not commit evil if they weren't existing to do it. Remember what Dante's answer was to the question, um, what's the cause of evil? Middle of, middle of purgatory. Middle of purgatory. Did God made, God made all the angels good. Did he make Satan evil? Did he make him bad? No. No. You know, Bob, one thing I remember in, in reading... It said evil needs an embodiment, and evil destroys itself, but it can't help but destroy what it's embodied in. Yes, I just want to, yeah, 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 absolutely, Kathy. I mean, according, I just want to qualify something here because I'm concerned about the Manichaean element in the Protestant world and the Catholic world, too. It's, I just want to be careful of the world of body. Angels have no body. I just want to, oh, let, I don't want to. Um, I don't want people to get angels don't have bodies, but they have form. So if they turned away from God, since they don't have bodies, but they have form, each one is distinct, is a form. There, each one is a species unto himself. He has a different form. Then that form would lose, you know, whatever, whatever you want to, something of its <laughs> formal nature. He would be less and less of an eight, more disfigured, uglier, you know, more crippled. I mean, wh whatever his intent would be. Um, and and the, the ultimate end of this, I want to get here because I'm afraid I'll forget it at the end. If that's true, if what we're saying is true, I'm not sure everybody's convinced yet, so I want to stay with it a minute longer. But if it's true, can God ever be defeated by evil? Absolutely not. I mean, oh. whatever anybody thinks about how much evil goes on in the world, there is no way, none in the world, that evil can defeat God. None. Unless you're Manichaean. And I hope I've shown that that philosophy just does not make sense. Here's my question. Where did evil come from? What was Dante's answer in the middle of purgatory? What? I thought we said last week it was nothingness. Nope. All of you just picture purgatory for a second. The the various levels that... Fred, did you have something? Is your audio on? So, you know, my answer to that question would be, as we went through the Inferno with Dante, all of the souls were there, found something else to love other than God. So they had you know, push God aside and found something else that they fell in love with, whether it was power, wealth, whatever, the yeah. pride, yep. the body, whatever. So, in essence, what Dante was, was trying to make clear, I think, 
was that evil is when evil occurs when man focuses on something else. It, it's a it's an ill-directed love. Yep. Other than a love for God. Yeah, and you just nailed it. I mean, you you nailed it. Dante's answer was this. This is. I mean, I remember saying it to you because the first time I realized it, and I read it, it blew me away. What Dante says is, put put this in a modern, because moderns are going to say, "Who are you to tell me how to love?" The fact that I love means I'm good. Dante says the source of evil is love. Mm. Square that. Now look at the look at the purgatory: pride, envy, wrath, sloth. Avarice, gluttony, lust, Eden. Pride is loving something enough to put yourself over another person. You put a person down. You can kill him, you can step over him, you can use him as a person. It's going to what you're saying, friend. Envy is wanting somebody to lose something that you don't have. In both of those cases, you love evil coming to another person. You create it from a disordered love. I mean, it's just another way of what you're saying. Wrath is wanting somebody to, to suffer because they've hurt you. So pride, so remember the breakdown of purgatory. Um, pride, envy, wrath were love of evil. They were distinguished from upper purgatory because man loves evil. I mean, another way of putting it, Fred. When you turn away from God and you make something greater than God, then you commit an evil because you you make that other thing a, a power that it, you try to give it. I mean, we've gone through this with Boethia. Satan's sin was not wanting to admit that he was a creature. He wanted to be all powerful. He didn't want to. I mean, you the church, you know didn't. I will not serve. He said he did not want to admit that his life depended on somebody else. Humans, if you if you if you've watched the Fellowship of the Ring, what's that ring? That defines that whole movie. Take that ring away and there's no movie. That ring is, a, is an image of the autonomy every single one of us wants. And what's at the center of it? Mine. It's mine. It's mine. The disfigurement of that desire inside of every one of us is Gollum. I believe every one of us carries a Gollum in him. Even if that's horrifying to you guys. <laughs> that when we, when we, I mean, it's it's just sort of emphasizing, it's underscoring Fred's point. When we make something greater than God, we want that, and we become dependent on that. That's Lady Philosophy's whole argument. Gollum, that ring, he's an image of what Frodo, kept. in fact, Frodo couldn't take it off at the end. He finally reached his desk. He could not, on his own, get that ring off. That's how hard sins are. That, that once we turned away from God, and we've got this tendency to want in autonomy, you know, to, to be free autonomous. We create these gods and they become the source of the things that hurt us. So Dante's answer to that question is, love is the cause of evil. Disordered loves. So to go back to the point we've been making, the whole quest of our lives is to learn to order our loves, to bring them in conformity to God, just to be to learn, to to be just to be what the Father wanted us, Yahweh, to learn to be just, to order our souls so that we can be. Because if we don't learn to order our souls, how in the world can we bring justice to another person? 
Something of our justice will be wrong. So the whole call for us is to learn to order to learn from the world to help it change us so we can become better. So the the three bottom levels of purgatory, pride, envy, wrath, was the love of evil. You want to be better than somebody else, put him down. You want somebody else to lose something because you envy it. You don't have it. You want to hurt somebody because they've hurt you. The middle one was sloth. Remember, it's it's not loving enough. And then the higher three tiers were loving a natural good. It's no longer loving evil. It's loving a natural good in the wrong way, excessively. Avarice, gluttony, lust. And the one closest to paradise? Lust. It's the one that most resembles love. So evil cannot be situated outside of God. If we take that position, we're a Manichaean. People can't commit evil if they don't exist, if they're not in being to do it. All the souls in heaven, all the demons are there. But they're all separated from God. But they could not do what they do if they didn't have being, if they didn't exist. So this whole notion that Lady Philosophy is pressing here, that God is complete goodness, is absolutely fundamental to our Catholic faith. She does nothing to espouse a faith. She's making a rational argument. It's the ground of goodness in our world. It's the same thing Lewis is doing. There's no appeal to faith. What's being demonstrated in both of these works works, is the extraordinary resources of rationality at the heart of our faith. John Paul's, one of his great exiculates, Fide Ratio, Faith and Reason, is one of his most important encyclicals. That our, that our whole struggle is to bring faith and reason together. The fundamentalist world does not know that. The Islamic fundamentalist does not world. The scientific world, by and large, does none of them admit a logos, a goodness to the world. Lady Philosophy is saying, goodness is diffusive. It's everywhere. There's no bad fortune. God is always at work. If we, start, if we become Manichaean, we get dark. We can get really dark. Um, here, I want to ask two questions because we're getting close to time. Um, she goes on, Boethius said, if God's in charge of everything, right, he brings good out of everything, then how can man have free will? Are you guys ready? I mean, we're going back, this is, <laughs> this is tough stuff I know. <laughs> I hope you guys are enjoying it as much as I am. I love these things because I think this is the root of our faith and who goes there? I mean, it's just God. Get us back. Help us to recover our minds um, so our faith can be better. She says, if God's, or Boethius said, if God's in charge of everything, how can man have free will? And that leads to this question of predestination and foreknowledge and fate. I don't want to go back over that, but I've got a, a couple of questions for you. You remember that Boethius said, if God's in charge of everything, how does man have free will? Right? That's a simple enough thing. And she goes from there to the next question, which is, I think, a little bit, I mean, it can help us get to the end here. Um, the question, if God foreknows something, does that mean um, man loses foreknowledge and he has no free will and what he, what he does is fated? Because if God foreknows it, how can it not happen? 
And Boethius, I should have you go back and all of you read Boethius. Boethius says there's a couple of different kinds of necessities. One of them is if Suzanne's sitting there in the chair, it's necessary that she's sitting there. She just is. If I say that she's sitting there, there's a necessity, there's a, a, necess a necessity to the truth of what I'm saying. It's, it's true. Um, so you've, it, you've got to be careful of that, first of all, whether, whether, um, God for, whether something happens because God foresees it or whether it's necessary, it's fated, and so he sees it that way. So it's important to see that distinction, okay? Is everybody okay? That is, the question is, does this happen because God foresees it? Is it necessary because he foresees it? Or was he already fated so God saw it that way? Because the question of free will is crucial to both of them. To answer that question, lady philosophy is something that's absolutely crucial to anything we go on to do ever in with Boethius or anybody. She said it's essential to make a distinction between the knowability of something, that a thing can be known, you know, a tree, we can know a tree, how it's different from a human, different from an animal, we can know an object, but it's absolutely essential to get clear that there's something even more important than that, and that is the mode of the knower because the mode of the knower will shape what that person sees. Now if that isn't clear, let me just, I know this is probably way abstract, but I, I'm trying to do everything I can to get back to Lewis in this objective theory of knowledge that the danger of thinking we can make the world fit ourselves because there's this great beauty to the world that's in danger of being lost if we don't. Let me put that last question another way. Does an angel, a human being, and a dog see a tree, let's say, in the same way? Because the mode of knowing differs for each, right? You remember as a, as a preparation for the stage, Lady Philosophy made the distinction between all those powers and man. She said man knows things by his senses, by his imagination, by his reason, and by his intelligence. The senses these see things according to their material characteristics. The imagination sees things according to the image without the material things. Reason knows things step by step. This happens, this happens, this happens, this happens. The medievals call it ratio. Intellect, understanding, means you grasp it all at once. So after ratio's done its reasoning, this, I see this, 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 and you come to a conclusion, you go, ah, I see the whole. You can call that understanding. We all know the difference. You can be perplexed by a problem, right? You can help your children go step by step, and you gotta do this, this. and then you, and then suddenly you see this light go on, and the kid says, I see. We, we know those things all the time. There are moments when we have these moments of illumination. The point she wanted to make is, each one of those is a different power. Can the lower one see any of the higher ones? Can the senses see what the imagination sees? No. Can the imagination see what reason sees? No. Can reason see what... No. They're all limited. But the higher can. Intellectus, understanding, can see ratio, what it's doing. Ratio can see what the imagination does. 
imagination, see what the senses do. So there are these different faculties in man that help us in understanding. And you all know that it's, I mean, we struggle to try to arrive at things so we can say, ah, I see. It's like in that moment there's a completeness and we're at rest. The whole work, the labor of knowing brings us to rest. I'm assuming that will be true, I hope, for all of us seeing Christ or God, that there will be this, uh, yes. So go back to my question. Is the mode of knowing the same for a dog, a human, and an angel when each one of them is looking at a tree? What does the animal see? I don't know about you guys, but... Animal must see senses. Yes. Yes. Now, what does the human see? Yes, Tracy, go. I would say all the way up to uh, at least reason. But how does reason perceive that tree? Because all of us say, according to our senses, we're saying the same thing. It's a tree, right? But what does a what does a human mind do with that tree that an animal can't? Well, you can imagine it from its infancy to its maturity, right? You can, um, yeah, I guess you can know a different tree, kind of tree from another kind of tree, and you make those distinctions. Uh, well, you just hit it. I mean, what reason can grasp but the imagination can't is the form, the universal. So when you look at a lot of trees, you can see individual trees. Let's say you've got 100 eucalyptus trees. Every one of them is different. Every one of them is particular. What makes one distinguish them is its material, you know, what constitutes it. But the form of every one of those tree, eucalyptus trees is the form of a eucalyptus. We can grasp the form, the species, What's you, what they all have in common. Can a dog grasp that? No, it cannot. Humans can grasp the forms. That's what was so important to Plato, that human beings can grasp the forms. We can grasp the universal. So we can look at, so we have a notion of color. So when you put a yellow, black, red, they're all different. Where do we get the name color? That's a universal property peculiar to all of them. So human beings can grasp the form of things. And, and understanding can grasp that closer to God. Now here's, here's, is everybody okay in that? Oh wait, how does an angel, here, better, sorry. How does an angel grasp that tree? Angels have no bodies. I don't know, I imagine they can understand the tree as a created Like, uh, oh, I don't know, like, you know, like the shininess of the molecules and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I like the shininess because it seems to me, the angels have no bodies. They're not going to perceive what the senses do. They would, they would grasp the whole by its form. In its brilliance, it's, you know, the form. But there would be no impediments, no mediations with matter, because they have no bodies. So the, the point that I want to stress here is that 
Boethius is saying it's important to know the mode of the knower. Okay? That we can't understand things if we don't understand the mode by which somebody knows. A dog knows differently. We know differently in our senses. If we get stuck in our senses, we don't, we're not able to grasp universals. We, we believe in a trinity. One of the great battles in the Middle Ages was between nominalists who said there's only particulars. There are no universals. And those who said there are universals. The trinity is universal. It's, it's not bound by matter the way created things are. So the, the mode by which a person knows or a creature knows is, is essential to understand what's known because it'll be known in a different way. To know things in part by ratio putting is very different from understanding where you put a whole together. So one more step and then we're at the end. Um, Lady Philosophy went on to make one other distinction because she said if the mode of the knower is as essential as it is then we have to keep that in mind um, when we think about the difference between God and man. And it's at that point that she made the distinction between perpetuity and eternity. And you remember that perpetuity was an endless series of moments. This moment, this moment, this moment. There's that wonderful line where she says, um, what, what is the present is already fading into the past when what is in the future is always coming to be present. The, the beauty of that, I mean, the beauty of the distinction is, I love it, um, because it's the present moment that most closely corresponds to God's eternal present. Because you know, in, for God, there is no past or future. Now hold on to this. There is no past or future for God. He sees all things. So his mode of knowing is different. Is everybody clear? Is everybody okay? In perpetuity, we're always in a moment, and that moment's fading. That's 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 why Eliot say, be, be, and Odysseus, her Homer, too many people live in the past at the expense of the present. Too many people live in the future at the expense of the present. The most important moment for us always is in the present, because that's the one that most immediately links us to eternity. So, it, it, Perpetuity is endless moments, one falling another, each one passing away and each one coming in. And we're mortal, so we're going to lose them. But perpetuity will go on. Why is it essential to distinguish between perpetuity and eternity? What's the difference in the ways of knowing peculiarity, the mode of knowing? What's, what's the difference between man's mode of knowing and God's mode of knowing in a time that's eternally present. There is no past or future for God. Um, yeah. I, 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 when you were talking about that, I would think, at least, that the only place that you can meet God is in the moment. And um, and maybe that's what um, eternal life is. Yeah. If God is in an eternal present, there's no past or future. How are we to understand God's foreknowledge of an event? When God looks at things, um, do they occur because He foreknows them, 
or they're ne- they're necessary do they lose their free does man lose his free will with god michael you're you got you can you go ahead jump in glad to hear you well i mean so uh, I'm, I'm trying to trying to find a way to articulate it um so what was the point you just made about uh, the question the question that he was wrestling with is if God has foreknowledge because we assume he sees everything does yeah. he necessitate an act does he make it predestined so that man loses his free will that's the question we're Right. With. So, just because he knows it doesn't mean that he caused it to happen. He knew that it was going to happen, or he knew, but he didn't cause it to happen. Yeah. So, I mean, that, so no, he didn't. It's not predestined. It happened, and he knows about it. Yeah. There's two. Remember, there's two questions. If God has foreknowledge, does that necessitate an act, or was it necessitated because it was fated, and then God saw it that way? I mean, that's the way it's set up in the book. Sue, go ahead. My comment is that the tense of the verbs you're using don't apply to God. It isn't foreknowledge or after knowledge. It is knowledge. It isn't that he sees it in the same mode we do. Right. He, we can only see what is present and maybe remember what is past right. in our past. Right. But he has a whole different way of looking at things. It isn't a question of cause because that implies something before and something after, nor is it... So, you know, the whole way we think about time doesn't apply. By the way, just before I... Because I don't want to lose this moment. um, Keep in... Yes, to everything you're saying. Keep in mind... um, the question about, you know, perpetuity and eternity and the different mo- uh, the different modes of knowing. We've done this together as a group. This is the opening lines of Eliot's four quartets. Time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future, and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. What's one of the problems with perpetuity? The difference between perpetuity and eternity? Fred, did you have something? So, here's, here's the thing that I'm still trying to get my arms around. Yeah. If you go back to St. Thomas and his, and his five arguments of, of why God exists, and, and, and number one on that list was the prime mover. And so if God, God set everything into motion in that initial yeah. prime move, and yet he knew everything. I mean, for him, the difference, the difference between perpetuity and eternity for me is that in perpetuity the only thing that's really 
clear is what you're focused on. So if you're focused on the present, what what occurred in the past is more obscure, or what's in the future is more obscure. Whereas if it's eternity, everything is as clear as the other. Mm-hmm. So how, how do those two things occur simultaneously? <laughs> how does God be the prime mover and 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 know how everything is is as though it already was? <laughs> Still, man have free will and all of that. Right. Um. Uh, here, let me. And it's late, so I don't. Yeah, it. yeah, no. It's it's what you know. It's it's right, right. It's 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 what I struggle with still in yeah. all of this. I mean, I believe man has free will, but conceptually, maybe it's just beyond my no, ability. No, I, I I don't think that's true. Carl, go ahead. You had something. If I remember correctly, when I thought I understood it in one of our lecture sessions, God looks at what is because everything is now when he looks at it. To him, it isn't the past, it isn't the present, it's now. Right, right. And how he can see past, he can see future, he can see today, and not that he's controlling it, because man does have free will, but... He knows everything that's going on, past, present, future, as now. Right, right. He's got that memory. Yep. Large problem. <laughs> no, that's that's so good. I, let me just add this because we're we're past our time, and I'm trying to be careful. I'm so glad. For, I know these are. T- I'm so glad to visit. You know, to go back to these because they're 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 tough questions and they're basic. Um, the, Fred, I, you're you're. I, I know that thing haunts you because of the way you said it, but I, I don't I can't even get begin to get into it. But let me just say this as a as a way of trying to simplify what we do have in a moment. Is that if 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 you've got perpetuity and eternity, then in perpetuity you've got no God because you're in a mortal world. Things are changing and shifting. Remember the image of the circle. Wait, I I, I see you, Bob. Wait a second. Um yeah. wait, wait, just wait, give me a second. Um Remember Boethius' image of the circle and the still point? That still point was still when the circle was revolving around it, and the farther away you got from the center, the faster things went. That was Dante's image of the still point, that was Eliot's. So in the, sim- in the center, there's no movement, it's still. The closer we approach that still point, the greater simplicity, no, the greater we identify with that center, the more we see the way God does, we enter into his world. By the way, I want to take this really seriously for a second. So in one sense, we're talking about um, the, our powers of reason and how our reason can help us. Boethius makes the point, the more you participate in God, the more you become like him. So I'm assuming that a saint will not see things quite the way we do. That's why he had St. Augustine's writings, or you know, that they help us to see things um, but you enter into a world of grace um, and begin to see differently from the way you did when you were without grace or 10 years earlier, you know, when you depended wholly on yourself. Or, But anyway, if you put the two worlds together, perpetuity at least is distinct from eternity in one sense. It does not have God. That present moment is not eternal. It's always being lost. It's already fading into the past, and a future moment is already coming to be. Okay? 
So that's one. Where was I going? Sorry. Um, oh, wait. The other is, if this is all true, think about the importance of the Incarnation when God entered time and took his place here with us in perpetuity. Now remember the lines I was reading from Eliot. Time present and time past are both perhaps present and time future. Time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, these perpetuity keeps going on in these eternal present moments because that's what perpetuity is. All time is unredeemable. We cannot redeem ourselves. It's only by something happening that brings eternity into our world that, that the separation, Fred, that you're talking about can occur. So there's a lot going on here. The, my, I, I hope, Bob, I'm, I'm not forgetting. No, 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 that's okay. We, you know, we, when, I, when we stopped in the middle of Lewis's abolition, I was trying to make the point that Lewis was using reason, not faith, to show the power with which reason can make clear an objective order that in some sense, I, I can't call it the base of our faith, but it's absolutely fundamental to our faith. We're not like other faiths in that way. Our whole call is to bring those two worlds together. And I wanted to go back to Boethius because he was making an argument using reason to show the reality of things um, that didn't depend on faith. We could understand good. We could understand God. We could understand evil. We could understand the difference between perpetuity and eternity. We could understand why it's important to distinguish between modes of knowing. That we don't know the way God does. So when we talk about free will and predestination and foreknowledge, we've got to get clear on what's going on. Um, my trust is that I'm hoping everybody sees how important this is and what a strength it gives us for our faith. That we can defend our faith. We can make an argument. We can show that the human being has been given something extraordinary. The modern world has just shrunken it horribly. What it's done to our nature. Um, God made us in his image. You know, we've... There's something so extraordinary. Um, Tracy's words were words were these shining, you know, shining, you know, the molecules, huh? Molecules, shining molecules. Yeah, thanks. You know that there's something great here that we've got to not lose. Anyway, sorry, Bob, go. I'm just just only two conceptual things. Uh, I'll put the the order in which I would, was presenting them. I'll reverse. The, the existence of God began with the beginning of time, period. <laughs> That's it. <clears throat> you can't have one without the other. And I'm just sitting here listening to this discussion this evening, and I'm so I'm sitting here and I'm saying, you know, being a geologist and, and a, a physicist with interest in, in science and the existence of, of rocks and, the, and how, how these... Our universe was created, which is enor enormity. We're sitting here sort of thinking of ourselves as really the entity that it, it, we're taken with ourselves, I guess is really what it, 
what it drives me drives drives me to to madness to a certain extent. But the beginning of our existence began with the existence of God, and at that same time is when time really began. And and I I mean, if I was a Machiavellian or a a Machiavelli, I could probably <laughs> extrapolate on that and then expand. Mani- a Manichaean, so, a Manichaean, yeah. That's it. That's that's all I want to say. Okay. <laughs> let me let me just make one comment here, and then we'll stop. Um, and, and I want to be careful here. I don't think there's any evidence to. I'm not aware of anything that that would keep us from believing that. Wait. Let me go back. When God identified Himself in the Old Testament, He said, "I am that am." I'm being. God is being. He's uncreated. That's that's at the center of our belief. That's our creed. He was not created. If he was created, it means he owes something to somebody else. He's not complete. He is uncreated being. There's no reason that I'm aware of, Bob, for saying that um, time began with him, because in that sense it would be time would be uncreated. We believe that the Trinity was... Well, wait, let me... Let me hold on. Let me, let me just... I wanted... I'll turn over you again. That God is uncreated. He's being, unbegotten. The Son and Spirit are one with Him because when God knows Himself, the Son is co-eternal, you know, and the same with the Spirit. So, Godhead is eternal. It's being. Creation came into being as an act of God bringing something into existence that was different from Him. So I would be careful about lining that up with creation because I think there's real problems with that. But the second is, when I when I think about these things, just so you know from another perspective, I think one of the problems with the modern world is that we are caught up in ourselves too much. When I think about when I think about the universe and what modern science has discovered, I am blown away. You know that we can think about universes upon universes on a universe, you know, going on infinitely or or perpetuity. If God knew the answer ahead of time, that would be the question. How could he know? <laughs> wait, okay. wait, wait, let me finish. So my res- my response to you is, I, I can't even begin to get full of myself when I think about that, because if I think, if I even conceptually try to think of universes going on forever, and and believe that, the, that a God made all of that, and that God was infinite, I, I just, I, I have two responses. One is, there's no way I can get full of myself because I'm nothing in the spec, and yet I know that I'm made in his image. That every one of us is somehow made in his image. So even if we're these infinitely small creatures in the you know, scheme of creation, there's still something extraordinary about us as human beings, as there was with the angels. So, um, okay, last thoughts before we. Laney and Michael, I hope we see you again. I hope this didn't chase you away, because <laughs> there's a lot of heavy there's a lot of heavy stuff going on tonight. Any any last comments before we? No, we will be back. We're like bad pennies. We won't go away. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. All right. It's good to see you guys. Bob, thank you. Kathy, Carl, Jeannie, Tracy, Fred, Barbara. It's good to see you guys. You guys keep, if we can all keep each other in our prayers, please pray for us, um, each other. Seriously, keep, 
I, I, we're all wounded. <laughs> no, I mean it. We are. I just, I'm. We're. I, I think I'm speaking for everybody. We're grateful that we pray for each other. So keep us in your prayers, and we will pick up with the second chapter of um, Abolition of Man. We'll either finish Abolition of Man next week or the following week, but I want to return to Abolition of Man. Well, what, what I'd like to do next week is start with any holdover questions, because I know this was a lot, but I'd like to get back to Abolition and, and finish it, and then we'll, um, we'll take up Aeschylus. But. So, okay, you guys have a good week. Stay healthy. Bye. Good to see you guys. Bye. Take care of Suzanne. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm learning how to put her ponytail in knots and put put her in shirts where she can get a, you know, it's it's funny to watch the two of us struggle. Yeah, to... Good for you. That's awesome. <laughs> Bye, you guys. Bye. Bye. I think that was a genuine wish on Fred's part, Doug. A genuine wish. For what? When he said... Um, Pray for Suzanne.